Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about another podcast you should be listening to. You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring women. So I want to tell you about another show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers to chefs building culinary empires to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. Listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts and visit latinatolatina.com for more. Okay, let's get to the show. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. Now, each of those women gets to pick someone from her life to talk to. Last episode, my friend Jing Cao spoke with her friend Danielle Guillen. If you missed it, go back and check it out. This episode, a former colleague many levels my senior, Megan Murphy, is talking with someone from her life. If you missed my interview with Megan, go back to episode three. Let's get to it. Hi, this is Megan Murphy. I'm the former editor of Bloomberg Businessweek and a longtime journalist. And I'm sitting down today with my partner, Hillary Rosen. Hillary, I'll let you describe yourself (laughs) and what you do. And we're going to have a chat today about how we got to where we are, what inspires us, and what makes us both activists in our own way. Hi, honey. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm a political and PR consultant. I help run a a firm called SKD Knickerbocker, and I'm a CNN political contributor. And we are recording this interview from our lovely house in the Dominican Republic, where we're on holiday, and we're looking out at beautiful waves. So if you hear waves crashing in the background (laughs) or clinking, that's our coffee cup. I know it seems wrong. I was thinking that we should tell everybody we're just like in a, you know, in a cubicle in the Senate, you know, dining room or something we so are, that nobody would feel bad. We are not in a cubicle. So Hillary is my fiance, but she is also and has long been a friend 
and mentor to me. And I derive daily inspiration from her and what she's achieved and learn from her. And when I think about, you know, conducting this interview and what people can learn, I think if you just tell a little bit of your journey about how you first got involved being an activist, being political, what drove you? I mean, I I know why, and I know part of the story, but sharing that with people, I think, you know, will help people understand sort of what can be achieved. You know, we're here in the DR celebrating my mother's 85th birthday. And so my career and my activism really does start with her. So it's appropriate. She was a politician when I grew up. She started in a typical way that women did in those days. She was active in the PTA and then became president of the PTA. And then somebody suggested she run for, you know, the town council. And she became the first woman elected to our city council in West Orange, New Jersey. And she was inspiring and beyond her own career. I think from the time I was six or seven, she would drag me to political rallies. You know, I I have vivid memories of marching for Robert Kennedy through the streets of Newark with her all the way up through McGovern. Yes, my mother's a flaming liberal, much more progressive than I am in many ways. And, you know, up to the point where I started developing my own political activity and became head of like students for Brendan Byrne, who was our governor at the time. I went to school in Washington, D.C. for college and started working in the New Jersey Washington office um, for Governor Byrne and the attorney general. And that's when I sort of learned not just about electoral politics, which is sort of what I'd always paid attention to, but what happens once people get in office and the decisions they make and thinking about policy. And I started working in the sort of public policy area, particularly affecting states and cities. I hooked up with a woman named Liz Robbins, who had a big practice in representing cities and states in Washington. We were the Washington office for New York City and for the Michigan legislature, and we did low-income housing bonds, and we did foster care, and all sorts of things. In those days, government programs were essential to the development of public policy, particularly in urban areas, and I started doing a lot of that work. And then a fluke happened, and that's when you sort of never know how your career is going to take a turn. Two things were seminal. One was that our client, the city of San Francisco, had a tragedy. George Moscone, the mayor, was assassinated, and Dianne Feinstein became mayor and therefore our client and my client. And we developed a very close bond. And at the same time, Liz's mother's decorator's husband was the chairman of something called the National Music Publishers Association, and he was looking for a Washington lobbyist. And we didn't really do corporate lobbying or private sector lobbying, but he asked us to help on a copyright issue. And it was challenging and interesting. And so I took the lead on that and became sort of a lobbying expert in the copyright space. And that led to a career for many years for me in the music industry and ultimately to run the Recording Industry Association. I took an interlude when Dianne Feinstein was elected to the Senate to be her transition chief of staff and 
had to make a decision whether I was going to go to the Hill and have a career in government or whether I was going to stay in the private sector and do this business focus. And I decided to stay at the Recording Industry Association. They made me the youngest president they've had. It was unusual. And I had a lot of great mentors. And I would say around that same time, I came out as a lesbian. And those were the days of AIDS and a lot of tragedy for young LGBT people because our friends were dying and the government was ignoring us. And I think it became only natural to be more active and use my spare time and my skills and knowledge of Washington to try and help the gay movement. And honestly, I think if I had had a different kind of job other than the music industry, it would have been hard for me to be so out and be so active and do the profession I had because Washington was a much more closeted place in those days. I mean, we're going to talk about both those things at, in greater depth now, but let's start with RIA and your career in the music industry where, I mean, there'll be a lot of people who listen to this podcast who've never even heard of Napster or Grokster or some of those battles that were fought in the 90s about copyright, about access, about the future of the industry more generally. But I think on a more personal level, you were identified and hated very publicly to the point where there was a time in your life when you needed physical <laughs> security to protect you. I mean, we can laugh about it People now. People took their free music very, but, very seriously. But, you know, in terms of foundation by fire, tell us a little bit, tell me a little bit about what it's like to be on the cover of a magazine as the headline of, what was it, Rolling Stone or something, and everybody hates Hillary. Yeah. Was it Rolling um, Stone? I think it was Wired, although I might have had my Rolling Stone articles as well. This was a time when the digital revolution uh, started, and it started with music and started with MP3s and free downloads and, <coughs> and music piracy well before companies and platforms had developed legitimate music sales and streaming platforms for consumers to actually buy music online. And the record companies were unbelievably slow and really derelict in moving so slowly in this. And, you know, books have been written and stories have been written and I'm quoted all over the place on what I think were the failings of the industry. On the other hand, I never felt badly about what I did. In fact, I was proud of it because in my view and to this day, look, intellectual property is very different than real property. When a songwriter writes a song and an artist records it, it's worth nothing. It's only worth something when it becomes popular. When it became most popular is when people wanted to steal it the most. So just at the time when an artist could actually receive return <clears throat> was when their livelihoods were threatened. And so my view was that it was important to try in as fraught and disruptive environment as we were living in to try and educate people about the implications of intellectual property theft. And, and I did that. And I definitely raised the ire of the technology industry. They did not experience that. They, and by the way, technology is very different. It's worth the most when it's the newest. And as time goes on, it's worth less and less and less. And so we really had kind of a clash of concepts, a clash of ideas, an ideological 
collision that took a long time to work out. And, and I was right in the middle of it for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's all very well and good to say that you were sort of fighting for this livelihoods and ideological. I mean, I think that if you were to challenge you on that and if you were to see the flip side, you were also, I think, seen as, as someone who was holding back the technological progression that now is so clear to see in hindsight that that genie was out of the bottle. Although that being said, when we look at where the industry now is in terms of iTunes, in terms of Spotify, in terms of being able to monetize that stream. But you can also say that the entire industry has changed in terms of how artists make money more from touring than releasing albums. And do you ever, do you look back now and think, I was holding back the gates of time? In other words, the flood was going to come crashing through. Yeah, I, do you feel- I was quite, I'm quite comfortable with where I was then and what I said and what I did. I, you know, when I've looked back on this a few times at, at my speeches and other things, and I was not in control of the business strategy. I was in, right? And, and I was very true. aggressive with the music community internally, privately, and then publicly about how they needed to get on board with this disruption. And if consumers were downloading as much as they were downloading from free online services, then that meant that there was a high demand that could be fulfilled commercially. And people just were protecting their existing business. The one thing that people don't necessarily understand is the record companies weren't in total control of this. I would frequently get calls from artists who would say things to me like, I'm releasing a new album next week. I hope you can protect it from online piracy and don't, you know, fuck up my Walmart sales. And I would say, okay, we're on it. And then Two weeks later, the album would get released and the artists would do a, you know, an interview and try and be cool with their fans and say, oh, I love it when people download my music. So there were constant collisions within the music community. The retailers who at that point were responsible for 90 percent of, you know, revenue were telling the record companies, you you can't sell music online cheaper than we sell it in our stores or we'll be sunk. And that was a was a countervailing pressure that the record companies listened to for, for way too long. I think why I wanted to talk about that and why it's so important is music was so political then. I think yeah. people forget about how politicized that industry was. It, it's, you know, now it feels so almost innocuous and, so, and not as much of a player, but there was Rock the Vote and, and it just was so important to your journey. On the flip side, what you also brought up about coming out as a lesbian, obviously we're both lesbians and have been for some time. Um, but recently, just to plunge right into it, we had the death of George Herbert Walker Bush, the first Bush president. Most people listening to this won't know, but I actually have spent the most of my adult career since the early 2000s in London. I worked for a British newspaper for most of my career and moved to Washington to cover the 2016 campaign, but had spent a lot of my formative professional years in London. And I was really surprised at his death, just how overwhelming the positive sentiment was and just the, the, the soft bathing of light. And one of the people who really stood out in this was Hillary Yu and being vocal about his record on AIDS and gay rights. And, you know, you described it as, what, what did you say, the fly in the ointment or the people who were unwelcome? The skunk at the, at the picnic. The skunk at the picnic. <laughs> um, but, you know, willing to, to sort of be 
public on that. I think it's, again, hard in 2019 to, to understand just how it felt like it was life and death back then. Well, we... I mean, you this know, isn't we, gay marriage. This isn't some, you know, this right. was we have true to, life. We death. have to honor, you know, we have to honor the truth and we have to honor the many, many, many young people who died because the government was homophobic. And, you know, I'd be curious to know how it felt in England at the time. I think a much more tolerant society much earlier on is always my impression of how it was in the UK. But it is hard to look back now and remember just how toxic politicians felt associating with the gay community was. And that extended to AIDS, which at that time was mostly affecting young gay men and older gay men. And so there was a, we were literally falling on people's doorsteps, dying on people's doorsteps, protesting in churches, doing every disruptive thing and to the chagrin of many to try and get the government's attention. And it was, for those of us in our 20s, so formative because it was life and death. Hi, Shira. Hey, Jenny. How's it going? It's good. How about you? I'm good. I just got off a Skype call with our intern, Emma, in North Carolina. How convenient. It was so convenient. She was having problems with the CRM, and I was able to chat with her over Skype and walk her through it. It was fantastic. Aren't we lucky? Because this first season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether it's one-on-one or in groups. And people also use Skype to send instant messages and share files and send gifts. So thank you to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype facilitates conversations like the one on this episode, that doesn't mean that Skype approves of or agrees with any of the opinions being shared. Those belong solely to the people who are speaking them. Okay, let's get back to the show. Bye. One thing people ask me all the time is, and the thing I think about in my own career that's been really important to me, is to be a very out figure. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm talk about my sexuality or bring it into the workplace, but I'm very conscious about being publicly identified as lesbian, being publicly gay. And the reason why is because I have so many young women, young young gay men, young lesbians, young trans, young people who aren't sure how they identify say, I don't feel like I have enough senior role models. I don't right. have anyone I can model. I don't have anyone that I look up to. I feel, you know, that I can't be my true self because I, I don't know how to do that. And I'm, and how you, who were really a generation before in terms of there weren't other many public lesbian figures at the time. I mean, who did you role model yourself and that journey on? Or did you? Did you have well, and I, I mean, I don't think it's that different. You know, when you were 
the bureau chief at the FT in DC and then at the DC bureau chief for Bloomberg, I think you were still the only out Washington major news organizations bureau chief. So we still have a lot of firsts and it's, you know, not always easy for that. For me- Well, Carolyn, Ryan, at the New York Times. That's true. You know, I didn't feel like I had a choice and I, I credit my mother with that, which is when I saw what was happening to my community early in the 80s, and how few people were willing to speak out, I automatically became sort of a gay political activist because I would talk to members of Congress. I I remember this vividly. I had a conversation with Senator Hatch, who was the ranking Republican on the Senate Health Committee with Ted Kennedy as the chairman. And we were fighting a couple of really homophobic senators on the floor with an amendment which now seems implausible, but there were literally amendments on the Senate floor that we would have to fight that said, you cannot spend federal dollars to educate people about AIDS if those people are gay. That was literally an amendment that a senator from North Carolina, Jesse Holmes, put on the floor. You know, we lost it once or twice, which is staggering to think about today. And Senator Hatch said to me, Hillary, why are you talking to me about those people? Why are you worrying about this? And I said, because I am one of those people. And if you are prejudiced against a, you know, a sick young gay man, you're not going to accept me either. And he just looked at me like so shocked and surprised. And I realized then the importance of coming out. And maybe that sounds like a sort of a trite story. But I realized then that unless people with access were willing to come out, you know, nobody stood a chance. And it just seemed like I didn't really have a choice. When we shift towards, I mean, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I am the former editor of Business Week. I consider myself now, I'm not working actively as a journalist. And I think anyone who knows me and follows me on social media, or I'm not expecting people to follow me on social media. You should. Have seen that I have- At Megan Murphy, 1569. At Megan Murphy. At Megan Murphy. have seen that I've taken a much, a very public political stance. And when I talk to people about this, and there's a lot of people who criticize me for this now, and there's a lot of people who say, you can't go back, or why are you doing this? Why are you exiting this profession that you've worked so hard at for 20 years? And I say to people, I feel like this moment is the same in terms of life and death. I I feel that Uh, There is no conflict between being a quote-unquote journalist and speaking the truth about some of the things that are going on in this administration right now. I feel no conflict in that. Yeah, and I also think that you don't give yourself enough credit on this. I mean, I think that you, even in your, the way you express yourself now, you hold to some journalistic principles of truth, right? So during during the Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh hearings, you said... Up front, Kavanaugh is lying. Yes. That doesn't seem to me to be an opinion. That clearly felt like a fact at the moment, right? That senators knew that he had lied to the committee about multiple issues. And so I feel like what's happened today in the news business is this there's still a tortured clinging to objectivity, the objectivity of presenting, quote, both sides, even if there is no, you know, both sides are sort of the truth. So I, I don't think you've crossed over a line. I think you've just been more vocal about calling the the center line. Well, I think that that's 
sort of where I was going in terms of both Hillary and I, Hillary's pundit still quite frequently on CNN. I used to do a lot of what I just call punditing. And I, I don't I don't walk the center line. I no. feel like Republicans have for too many years gotten away with a party that has systematically oppressed people and profited from it and ran on it and try and gain power on it. So I, I'm actually, I don't feel like I'm in the center at all. No, I mean, I don't think anyone who has your track record, Google Hillary Rosen for some of her most famous punditing incidents, shall we say. But that's what I was going to say. When we, I always say to people, I think when we look, we'll only understand this time period in sort of 10 years time and the impact and how we all responded to it. And it's been really important to me in my journey to be able, I have a you know nearly four-year-old daughter, to be able to say to her, when these things happened, I didn't say I'm telling both sides because it's exactly as Hillary says. I don't feel like there are two sides to this story in many respects. I don't feel when we talk about LGBT and we talk about what's happened to the trans community under this administration and demonizing elements of that community, whether it's in the military, whether it's paying for gender change surgery, et cetera, that there is no side to humanity. And that I have found to be really troubling about my industry. And I think one of the most significant differences with Europe is just the ability to be more vocal about calling it as you see it. But as a participant yourself in CNN don't and, and punditing, it feels increasingly gamesmanlike. You know, when we talk about Hillary being the Democratic pundit and then having to put up some Republican pundit and sort of face off on these issues, it's don't you feel it's almost debasing of humanity in some respects in, I, in news? I mean, I say this to young people all the time, which is find a cause you believe in and go for it. Um, and I honestly go to CNN every day respecting so many Republicans on the other side who I end up debating because they believe what they're saying. What I object to is when people are sort of parroting talking points or they feel bullied by the Trump machine into being the way they are. But I I think that, you know, I grew up at sort of that mid-level where my mother, you know, was the living through the 60s and 70s and is an anti-war activist and then a feminist. And I felt like my moment was the gay rights movement. And now I feel a bit of a resurgence around women's equality that we just never achieved and we have to work so much harder at now. And I do think that the president sort of embodies that struggle for women, at least for me. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that there are people who feel differently with the same kind of ideology and conviction that I have for my own beliefs. And I'm, I'm willing to concede that. And so I don't, I think there are lots of games on cable TV, but I, I do think that there are legitimate debates that people are entitled to hear. And if you conduct them civilly and thoughtfully, the viewer learns something. And if you don't, the viewer isn't served. Well, let's sort of close this out by talking about what over the past two years, even more so than the current political crisis we're in, but that has really dominated a lot of your activism, which is Time's Up, and your involvement in the hashtag MeToo movement and the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund and how you got involved in that and where you see that going and 
how that is going to play up. Is this going to be looked at as a very finite period of time where we saw a lot of senior men, a lot of whom we knew for a long time were bad actors. It was, that's one thing I think people who sometimes aren't in this community don't realize how public it was that people like Les Moonves were doing these kind of things for so long. And I sometimes fear that this is going to be a very temporal moment. Or do you see it as a true clearinghouse and that there is, lines have been drawn, people have a new understanding, this is a new framework that we're playing in. Is it really going to lead to permanent change with women being at the table, being present in those decisions? I mean, I always say to people, it's great that we're really focused on sexual harassment, but if you want to see much more damage to women in the workplace, look at how many women are bullied in the workplace. Look at how many women aren't at the table. Look at how many women stagnate. Look at how it's still such a low proportion of senior executives, cabinet officials. You know, how, how is this long-term going to play out? Sexual harassment is a power issue more than it's a sexual issue. There was a McKinsey study that was released a few weeks ago, and I encourage people to look it up online. But it essentially said that if we continue at the same pace we are for equality for women in the workplace with respect to pay and representation in management, we will achieve equality in 200 years. So obviously something has to get accelerated. And I do think that there is a a new consciousness now not just among men, but among women. And I, I feel like the difference between the feminist movement of today and the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s is that in the early days, women knew what they wanted. Feminists knew what they wanted, but they were kind of knocking on the doors asking for it. And today there just are a lot of women, not enough women, but a lot of women that have access and money. And an increasing number of those women are willing to use their access and their money to kick open the doors, to demand equality, to demand behavioral change. And I think that is the essence and opportunity for Time's Up, not to take over a new agenda or to create any sort of dramatic new sort of policy, but essentially to lift up the voices that have been vocal for a long time. You know, the farm workers, women, the, you know, the restaurant workers, the domestic workers, like there are women who have been fighting for equality for years, but they haven't had the access and the resources to do it. And I think Time's Up brings that to the table. And I feel like for the feminist movement in general, that is our big shift. That's our big opportunity right now. But You and I have argued about this in the past, that I worry that people will look at Time's Up and famous actresses and people wearing black to the Oscars, and that people aren't really thinking about these women who are systemically disadvantaged in waitressing, who still don't have access, the voice, the ability to get on a stage and, you know, and that it's a... Well, that's our challenge. That is our challenge. That's our challenge is to not let this fade away as an as a cause, but to turn it into the life's work of more people than it is now. And I, I'm optimistic about Time's Up as an organization. We've hired a new president named Lisa Borders from the WNBA, who's fantastic. There's a, a large coalition of women across the country who are interested in 
We've divided into sectors. So we're working on the hospitality sector and the healthcare sector and the advertising sector and the tech sector and healthcare. And so I think that slowly, methodically, there will be more support and more engagement across the board. Okay, final question, not even a question. There's been a lot of talk recently, obviously heading into 2020, and it's ramping up about whether we can have a female president. Is America ready for a woman president? And I, having lived in Europe for so long, it's amazing to me how much people look at the Hillary Clinton experience, which by the way, Hillary Clinton, and I hate the journalism around this because we do not have a tradition in this country of senior female political leaders. We do not. Right. You know, we have had, when people say they compare every candidate now to Hillary Clinton, why is, why is that the comparison? And look at how much focus there is on Nancy Pelosi being a woman. Exactly. And when I look at Europe, this isn't, you know, Germany, but even before Angela Merkel had a tradition of, you know, strong female party leaders. You know, in the UK, obviously, we had Maggie Thatcher, we have Theresa May. And it's not... Not that they don't aren't written about in a sexist way, et cetera, but I don't understand why this is still the question. Why is it not the comparison with other liberal figures on the left? Can we have a president who believes in abortion at any time? For you know, can we have a president that has believes in Medicare for all? It's the litmus test is on liberalness and liberal issues and democratic views. But it is framed now and so frequently now still by journalists as this woman issue. And, and this this is clearly a media problem. Absolutely. Not an American voter problem. Let's not forget two things. A majority of Americans wanted Hillary Clinton to be president. Never forget that. She won two million more votes than Donald Trump. So I do not believe that this is actually a woman problem. I think this is a journalism problem. And I am completely confident that America is ready for a woman president. Yeah, as am I. And we will sign off with that <laughs> ringing endorsement for a female leader in 2020 and that this is a, a media problem rather than a voter problem. So thanks, Hillary, for sitting down and Thank doing you, this. Thank you, love. This was fun. It was really fun. And we hope you guys listen and check out Wonder Media Network for everything else that they're doing. So signing off from... Casa de Campo in the Dominican Republic. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. This month is all about that second link in each interview chain. Then April will be all about the next step beyond. Next week, my new friend, Denora Gattaccio, is on deck. For the next episode in Megan and Hillary's chain, Hillary gets to pick someone who she wants to interview. Stay tuned for episode 11 to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at wmn.media and on Twitter at wmnmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brower. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week. <laughs>